Another podcast, another day. Welcome to the Duck Territory Podcast. I'm Matt Prame. Eric Scopel is across the way. Hello, hello. And uh, another week of kind of a hodgepodge of what we're going to talk about. Uh, it's the hitting a stretch run for Oregon men's basketball um, or women's basketball. It's got a huge road game or a huge home home game against Utah. Both teams are. Uh, I think what eighteen and one or seventeen and one. Yeah, both have one loss on the season. One loss on the season, uh, and the Ducks because Utah upset Stanford last week. Uh, the Ducks now have the driver's seat for the the conference race. It was always going to be what's going to happen with Oregon versus Stanford. They only play once, uh, but now Oregon has a one game up lead on Stanford. Now Utah is a team that's kind of. Risen to the challenge here a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about women's basketball as well. Eric's going to start shifting his uh, attention a little bit over to the women's side, uh, and then on top of that, hey, it's recruiting. We've got one more week, basically, until signing day. February 6th is signing day. We're recording this podcast on the 29th of January. There's literally seven days until National Signing Day is here for the second time of 2019, so we'll We'll go into kind of where Oregon is at and, you know, kind of set your expectations, I think, a little bit of what that day could be like. Uh, and then also, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up with a look ahead to 2020 and, and I think just more of the discussion of 2020, uh, and why if you're an Oregon football fan of recruiting, I think your mindset is going to change a little bit, and it has to change if you're a fan of recruiting. Um, and then on top of that, also softball. Uh, top 25 ranking came out today, and they are included. And so, Which is crazy. We we will uh, <laughs> we'll discuss that as well. But let's let's get right to basketball for the, on the men's side of things. Uh, really solid bounce back effort from this team after just another just. Let's start with the bad. Yeah. Maybe. Gut-wrenching loss on Thursday night to UW. I mean, horrible, horrible first half uh, against the Huskies in a game that I think they needed 12 minutes to get to double digits in points. Uh, They lose 61-56. But the gut-wrenching aspect of it is is that the Huskies finished the the last two minutes of the game on a 10-0 scoring run. And Oregon did not score a single point in the final two and a half minutes of this game. They were up five at one point. And somehow, some way, uh, things fell apart. I mean, it fell apart. And again, it was in kind of unbelievable fashion the previous game that we've seen. Where I mean, I didn't even justify what happened in the last ten seconds. I know. We haven't even talked about that. But uh, for a game, you know, let's just point blank. For Oregon to lose that game. In regulation, it was crazy because they had the ball. Ten seconds with to 10 go. Ten seconds, they're going to take the final shot. And the shot, game is tied. And the game is tied. And for them to lose in regulation by five points, by the way, they didn't just lose by like one point or two points, yeah. is crazy. And, and if you've obviously, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. Um, I, I think most people objectively would say that's the wrong time to raise your arm and call it a shooting foul. Uh, in a tie game where there wasn't overt contact. If Peyton Pritchard had tackled Jalen Sure, Noah, absolutely. Let's call the foul. He ran under him and maybe nudged his knee. Should he have been that close? Maybe not. Dana Altman didn't have a problem with yeah, the first he, he said he said that's, where, that's where he was supposed to be. So, um, Frustrating way to end a game. Frustrating way to lose 
I think the bigger picture story on this is if they'd beaten Washington right now, they'd be four and three in the Pac-12. They'd just be two games off of Washington for lead, and they'd still have a very outside, but a chance of gaining an at-large bid because they'd probably be in the mid. That would have been one of their best wins. It would be their best win of the season. I'm not sure where Syracuse is at, but it would put Oregon in that 55-60 range in the net ranking, where at least you could look up and go, "Hey, if they get really hot here and they finish conference play with." I don't know, 8 out of 11 or 9 out of 11 wins, and they beat some good teams, and they don't lose to, like, Washington State and Cal, they'll have a chance to at least possibly be considered, even if they don't win the conference tournament. Yeah. Now it's win the conference tournament or bust. There's 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 nothing on the schedule, really. Aside from maybe winning out, maybe if they won their last 11 conference games and yeah. won two in the conference tournament. I mean, it's going to take... It's just, it's, it's just improbable. I mean, it's, it's almost as improbable... Their chances of making this as an at-large is probably as improbable as the way they lost to Washington East. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, so, tough spot. And, but what we're getting to, the positive aspect is is they did, for the second time in a couple weeks, respond to a gut-wrenching uh, defeat with a 20-point victory. And one of their – I mean, last time against UCLA when they had that lead nine minutes to go with a minute and they lost, which – what what is crazier having the I, having the having the I lead? I still think that. I still think that one minute lead with, with one minute to go in the game, you got a nine point lead and you lose that one, or having the ball ten seconds to go, game tied, and you lose by five. Like I, mean, that, it, <laughs> I mean, the fact that those are, you can even have a conversation that there's another game that would match the insanity of UCLA speaks to how crazy <laughs> the season has been. I mean, the reality is this team could is like five possessions going differently from being like six and one right now. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's and that's what's frustrating about this team is that. Right. You look at it, and it's like, okay, they played just like dog crap against Oregon State in the first half, worked all the way back to get the lead in the final few minutes, and then lost it down the stretch because of just poor execution. Offensive up, the, yeah. the The UCLA game, they're up nine with a minute. They lose that game. It's and, self-explanatory. And, <laughs> and I, I think, look, ASU, they had the ball up four with six minutes to go in the game, and they lost by double digits. But, look, I, I think that's one that you just – that's a loss. Yeah, I mean, you, had a, you have a 19-0 run. And yeah, that's a ton that, that one. That's right. a loss. I, I don't think you can sit here and justify, oh, they should have won that game. So no, that, that's a loss. Agreed. But then the Washington game, you look at that one and, you know, having the ball with, with 10 seconds to go or having the lead with, with five points with four minutes or two minutes to go, to go yeah. you know, like that's a game you should have won. And so you put three games on and, and yeah, instead of being three and four, all of a sudden now you're six and one. And not only are you in the driver's seat for the conference, your at-large bid is fully healthy, I think. I mean, I, I, mean, it, I'm not, I can't fully project this, but I think if you were to say Oregon won all those games besides Arizona State, their net ranking, which has replaced the RPI, would probably be in like the 40s right yeah. now. And, you, and they'd legitimately probably be in like Joe Lenardi's last four in, last four out kind of discussion right now. But that's I mean, just you the way it goes. You wouldn't be satisfied no. and you wouldn't have a high seed but you would be in and then it wouldn't you wouldn't be looking at it like hey we need to win the conference tournament to, to, to ensure that we get in you you could get to the conference semifinals and, and and you know finish first or second in the league and get to the semifinals and feel good about your chances yeah. and that's what makes I think this this season as a whole so frustrating is because yeah this team has its warts and yeah they've had to learn how to play without bull bull but this team is still really really good from an individual standpoint, and it's just like they can't mesh. They can't figure well, things out, it seems it's like. It's also a consistency aspect to it, and that brings us back to Sunday a little bit, where that first half, Washington State... They, made, were, un, they were unreal. They made 15 of 17 shots to open a game. Can you? I can't think of the last they time. Shot I've 
seen a team do that. 77%. And it was a deal where it was just like some of them were you know, defensive lapses by Oregon. And, and, and I think Altman and uh, Kenny Wooten and uh, Ehab Amin all said it. But, you know, they, they had some lapses. But you also just had to give credit to Washington State because – they had guys making shots with hands in their faces. I mean, they had three pointers that were deep going down. Yeah, they, they, they hit some incredibly tough shots. And in the second half, and that was a game, and I think you wrote it best, where that was a game where, you know, tail of two halves. Because in the first half, they shot 77.3%. They went four of six from three. Uh, their two best players, Franks and Ellaby, combined for 27 points on 11 of 13 shooting. Take that uh, every night. And they both made two three-pointers each. Uh, they they had five turnovers, but you know seven as a team. That's not not the worst. And then in the second half, things just fell apart. They combined for just seven points on three of twelve shooting. Uh, they had four combined turnovers, and the Cougars shot as a team eight of twenty four from the field for thirty three percent, and that brought their their average down to fifty four point three. So you look at it and you're like, wow, fifty four point three. They played you know they played pretty well overall for the entire game. I think it's just Literally just complete opposites. You know, they couldn't miss in the first half, and then in the second half, they were god awful off- offensively because outside of uh, Robert Frank's two made baskets, not one player on the Washington State's team made more than one field goal in the second half. I mean that, that's that's incredible. Uh, and then on the flip side from things, Oregon in the first half, like forty eight percent, not you know. Pretty good. Pretty good average. They had nine points from Lewis King, a very efficient three of three in the first half, six from Kenny Wooten off the bench, eight from Paul White on three of seven shooting. Uh, and then in the second half, the Ducks were blistering. They made 61% of their shots. They had 13 assists on 16 made baskets. They finished the game with 21 assists on 30 baskets. They had just seven turnovers, uh, and they had four turnovers in the second half. And a couple of those – came in the last minute or two when the game was was over with. I mean, I, one that sticks immediately out to me was a behind-the-back pass from from Will Richardson, which would have been just oh, an unbelievable play. That was a great pass. And it hit Ehab and Mean in the hands and bounced out of bounds. Uh, and so Oregon walks away with this with a 78-58 victory, kind of gets themselves back in the confidence column with a win. Yeah. But I think the bigger story here is – Oregon did this against Syracuse earlier in the season, um, and Dan Altman has twice said this, where it's not as big of a deal as, as you know maybe we've tried to make it out to be. But um, against Washington State, they started Will Richardson instead of Victor Bailey. I think that's a natural position to to do because yeah. Victor at the one point missed. Oh, 14. I think 15, wasn't it? He missed. Yeah, he, he made. He, he right. made. No, he made this his 16th. But he missed one in the first in the first half. So uh, you know he didn't start. And going into that game, he was 0-14 in those last two games. Uh, and so, so obviously he's in a shooting slump, and he needed a little bit of help, and you know just kind of readjusting. So Oregon put Will Richardson into the starting lineup, but the move was they put Pritchard at the two, and Will Richardson was in charge of running point. And look, and you can say, you know, both guys, you know, Altman said it wasn't anything that all that big, and and that it. it, it they leaned really on both guys to bring the ball. Both guys can handle, and that's true. But in that game, it was pretty obvious watching it where Richardson, when it was inbounded or outletted, uh, Pritchard was running up the court, and, Richards, and Richardson was the guy bringing the ball up uh, when when they were on the court together. And, and they played 
17 of 20 minutes together in the second half. Uh, I think they both played over 30, 30 minutes, I think it was. Richard had 35, didn't he? Uh, Richardson played 29 minutes. Pritchard played 34. So he had five more minutes on the court where he played point by himself. But the, the thing here is, is that I think this is what has to happen. And it has to stay this way until it's, it doesn't work again. Because you look at the shooting numbers, and yeah, Pritchard shot 2 of 10 from the field. But I don't think he had maybe what, one shot that was a bad shot. Everything else was... He, yeah, he forced one at the end of the half. Yeah, he stepped into he stepped into jumpers. He mm-hmm. got layups. Uh, he got open three point attempts. And look, he's a good enough shooter. He's in a slump right now. He really yeah. It's, and it's, and that's yeah, putting it nicely. <laughs> and eventually though, that that will correct itself, and the averages will will go back up. And if you get if you give Pritchard good looks, even if he's in a, a poor shooting slump, he'll shoot himself out. And I think this is the role that he should be in moving forward as. You're our best shooter. You are our, our career best guy. You're a pure shooter. We need you to shoot open looks, get you open looks, and, and have you not worry about setting everything else up for the offense. Let Will Richardson do that. And it, and it worked. You know, Oregon, that's what Oregon said going into that game, and it worked. Both guys had 14 assists combined. Uh, no, offense, no turnovers. No turnovers. And I think the offense, and maybe it's a hot take because it's Washington State, but – I just felt like the offense just flowed a heck of a lot better. Absolutely. And, and I think another thing we should mention here that um, we're starting to kind of see a little bit more of a, kind of what the hierarchy offensively is going to be. And Luke King, I don't know if he's gotten as much credit as he probably deserves oh. because this is a guy who was barely playing like a month ago. I mean, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say barely playing, but he was coming off injury. He was limited. He was shooting at a much lower level. In conference play, he's been awesome. and Almost 18 points a game. He's, yeah, and, and he's leading the team in rebounding. He's shooting the ball at a really high level. He shot 8 of 11, 4 of 6 on 3 for 22 points against the Cougars. And against Washington, 7 for 12 and 1 for 3. So over the weekend, he was 15 for 23 and 5 for 9 from 3 combined, and he averaged about 20 points a game. Um, and had about five rebounds a game. He he is clearly the team's go-to player offensively. It's another thing that makes you frustrated going back to that Washington game that he didn't get a, a touch on that final yeah. possession where uh, Pritchard turned it over after the game. They did say that the intent was to get him the ball, but Washington uh, covered it pretty well. But he his development as kind of the clear go-to guy, night in and night out, that has been key. And the other thing that I think that was nice to see on, on Sunday was Kenny Wooten played by far his best game of the season. And if they can get consistent scoring from King, Wooten, and White and have Pritchard and Richardson kind of just, you know, assist stuff on the outside, Peyton and uh, and Bailey kind of as your spot-up three-point shooters and everything else just kind of falls into place, that's a pretty decent yeah. core for in a Pac-12 conference that's not very good. I look at, you know, after the game, it was funny, Dana Altman said that, you know, he, he'd been talking to Lewis about being more aggressive and seeking out the ball and and seeking out his shot and trying to get him to shoot. He said, I got no problem getting other guys to shoot. They have they have absolutely You're talking about Kenny. Uh Kenny? Yeah, you're talking about Kenny Wooten, right? I thought it was Lewis. Oh. I thought you were talking about Kenny Wooten, no? No. Oh. Uh maybe maybe we have to go back and listen to the tape, but either way I think both guys need to shoot more. In oh. term in terms of Kenny Wooten and Lewis King, because I think Wooten is such an athletic freak, while it may not be pretty, he's just Better than everybody else athletically, yeah. that he can get good, he can get decent looks at the rim on hook shots and whatnot. And then I think Lewis Lewis King needs to be a guy where 
I mean, look at his shot chart. He shot 23 shots over the weekend. He needs to be shooting 30-plus a weekend, I think. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I, I mean, he's had one, he's had two games, uh, excuse me, three games in Pac-12 play where he's, he's attempted more than 15 shots. Um, I, I think that's kind of the baseline. Like, he needs, he needs 15 to 20 shots a game. And he had three in the first half on, on, on Sunday and then shot, I think, eight in the second half and scored 22 points. I think he needs to be more aggressive. Uh, and I think the team needs to do a better job of running things through him, yeah. frankly, because, like I said, clearly he is this team's best offensive player. And maybe you don't spend too much time on it, but this is the way he's been playing in Pac-12 play begs the question of is he going to be another one-and-done guy, yeah. which back in December when we were doing our, pre- our Pac-12 podcast, we were kind of thinking there's yeah. no way. And he's just played, I think, even better than we expected he could. Yeah, there were a lot of NBA scouts at that Washington State game, as crazy as that sounds, uh, because they were there to watch Robert Franks of Washington State. He's a, a, a second-round type talent guy. Maybe maybe, really a, well. maybe a first-round, late, late, late first-round guy depending on workouts. Uh, and then they were there to see Lewis King. And them, those two guys match up. And there were a lot of scouts there watching that one. Both of them played uh, incredibly well. Now the Ducks go into uh, a stretch run here in the next five Five games where, look, the reality is this. If Oregon wants to finish in a top four seed in the Pac-12 tournament, because that's what you're – these are mini goals. You have mini goals. And your your top goal is to get the NCAA tournament. And to get the NCAA tournament, you got to get your best your best case scenario uh, in, in Vegas. So that means you need to be first. Well, if first is not possible and, and the one seed is not possible, you then need to try and get a top four seed. And so to get a top four seed – You've got to go uh, and win this stretch of, of five games that's coming up where you have at Utah, at Colorado, at home versus Cal, at home versus Stanford, and then on the road at Oregon State. Those five games, uh, only Utah is ranked inside the top five in the conference. Oregon State is, I believe, sixth. They're right above Oregon, yeah. And they have, they have a four and three record. Uh, in conference play, they're one game ahead of the Ducks. Stanford's three and five. Colorado is two and five. California is zero and eight. You have to. I mean, ideally, you have to walk out of this five-game stretch four and one. I mean, and I was going to say, you look at the standings right now, and despite Oregon not playing great and not closing games very well, they're like remarkably only a game and a half out of fourth place. Yeah. If they go out and let's say they win their next four games, and let's not even touch the Oregon State game, because I do think they can... Colorado's very beatable this year, even though Oregon hasn't won there in their Dana Altman and Utah. Uh, I've watched them play. I don't think their talent is better than Oregon. And then those two home games against Cal and Stanford, that has to be a sweep. If that's not, something's wrong, because those teams are a combined 3-13 and 13 in conference play. Yeah. If they win those four games, you look up, Oregon is now 7-4, and four, and I almost guarantee you that put them in the top four, and not yeah. just in the stretch run of the last seven games. And... The reality is this. I think they will probably be a one-point, one-and-a-half-point underdog at Utah, I think, on Thursday. Something and like Colorado, they'll probably be the opposite, one, one-and-a-half-point favorite uh, against the Buffs. And then at home against Cal and Stanford, they'll be favored for both of those probably games. Probably 8 to 15 points in those. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Stanford 8. Probably, Cal for sure. Cal at least 15. Um, Stanford, you'll, you'll probably see him be a four or five, you know, point favorite. Um, and then at, on the road at Wash, at Oregon State, excuse me, it, it'll be very similar to Utah. Two and a half, three point underdog in that game. Nothing that's insurmountable, nothing that you look at and say that's not a winnable game. Right. Um, I mean, ideally you need this team to go five and oh, but I, I think they have to come out of this stretch with a four and one record. 
Yeah, I don't think there's much argument there. They they dug themselves a hole, like we said. They could easily be six and one right now instead of the three and four, and they have some work to do. But this stretch right here is where they need to take advantage because the back end they play the last seven games, only two of those will be at home, and that's really where things get tough. Uh, shifting over to women's basketball here for a second, um, just I don't know if Oregon fan, if you haven't watched this women's team play. Um, watch Friday's game. Watch Friday's game. <laughs> Start. Begin watching them because they're very fun. Uh, this might be one of the most explosive all-around teams I've seen in just basketball in general um, at the college level. I, I hate the comparison, but it's almost like Golden State in that they've got four girls out on the court that at any one point could be three-point shooters and, you know, explode for points. And then they've got Rufy Hebert down low, who is almost a double-double machine uh, in points and rebounds and is very efficient scoring the basket. And what's crazy is, is it seems like, obviously you have Sabrina and what she can do with her triple-doubles and, and, you know, NCAA record. But what's wild to me is it seems like every other game – Satu Sabali and Aaron Bully trade off of, okay, who wants to be like the person just absolutely torching it from three and make seven or eight three-pointers in a game? Because one game, Aaron Bully will score seven points on three of six shooting, and Satu will, will go for 28 points. Let me, let me read you Aaron Bully's splits here, because this is crazy. Okay, so she scored 28 points and hit eight threes against Washington in the first Pac-12 game. The next, this is the next eight games. She had 12 points, three points, four points, two points. She had 19 against Arizona, three points. And then she goes for 31 against Washington again. So in two games against Washington, she scored like about 30 points a game. She's had a combined 17 of 25 threes, which is, by the way, like 70%, which is absurd for that many shots. But in between that, she bailed, she had like three games where she, she had four games where she made one field goal. Yeah. I mean, and, and then look at Satu's numbers. Yeah, I mean, her, I've got those pulled up as well. Satu's are, are just, I mean, I, I have jokingly said this on Twitter, but she's almost becoming unguardable offensively because she can handle the ball, she can shoot threes, she has a post-up game, she's got a really good mid-range game, and you know, from the women's side of things, there's just not a lot of people out there that are six foot four and have the lateral quickness to stay in front of her. She's at six four. That's the equivalent of probably six ten for a male player. This is like Chris Boucher, who yeah. can, who can dribble to the rim a little bit more and who's even a better three point shooter. Um, she has been. Awesome. And you look at her Pac-12 stats, 19 against Washington, 25 against Washington State, 26 against Southern California, 19 against UCLA, 8 against Arizona State, 25 against Arizona, 33 against Washington State, and then 8 against Washington. So two kind of down games. But for the most part, she's been a 25 to 26 to 33-point game scorer for them. And her shooting it from three has been incredible. So this is like not a two-headed monster. This is, like you said, with Golden State, this is becoming a five-headed monster. And my take is Zorla probably is the one player that doesn't do as much off offensively. Maybe she's she doesn't been, really have to. She's the Draymond Green <laughs> of, the, uh, of the team there, which is, by the way, probably the only time she's ever been compared to Draymond Green because nothing else about her resembles him in the slightest. But um, this is yeah, this is becoming a team that uh, I agree with you, Matt. If you haven't been following and you're and you're frustrated with the men's team, I know there are people like that. Switch gears a little bit. I, I will be doing that with my coverage, not because I'm frustrated, but just because it, it, there's a call for it because this has been such an incredibly dynamic, fun team to watch that fans want to read about this team. This yeah. is this is a fun, fun team. And it's not just that they're winning every game because they've won, like, what, 16 straight games or something like that? Yeah. It's that they're 
really fun to watch, yeah. and it's really good basketball. They're eight and in conference play. They're nineteen and one overall. They're fourth in the country. They're a two seed in the latest bracket uh, bracketology released by ESPN. Uh, and Friday night they have a huge game against a top twenty opponent in Utah, who's eighteen and one in overall, seven and one in conference play. The Ducks are first. Uh, Utah is currently second. So whoever wins this game will position themselves in first place. If Oregon wins, uh, they then have a two-game lead on Utah. They have a one-and-a-half game lead uh, on Stanford. And if, if Oregon could beat Stanford without dropping a game before that one, uh, they really could put themselves in a position where they have a they, they have a, uh, the tiebreaker and a two-game lead over Utah and Stanford. And then they have two games coming up against Oregon State, who's – Done a really good job without one of their star players who's been out for the season midway through the year at seven and one conference play too. So, look, the women's basketball it it's a juggernaut. It's loaded in the conference. They've got seven teams projected uh, to make the NCAA tournament. I think you've got like five teams ranked in the top twenty. Uh, and then yeah. California at one point was was really high in the rankings before they went four and four in conference play and came down to earth a little bit here. But look, I'll say this. I was turned off by Oregon. You know, I was turned off by women's basketball four or five years ago. Uh, I gave it a chance. I've I've gotten into it. I'm into it. I enjoy watching it. Um, I've I'm ta- I've taken my kids. I have two boys. They enjoy going and watching this team play. Uh, we'll be there Friday night watching them play. You'll be there covering the game. Um, it's entertaining. It's cheap from from a ticket perspective. So if you're looking for something to do and you live in the Eugene area. Uh, or if you want to make the drive, I, I think it's worth it. You're gonna you're gonna see really good basketball from in an environment that's slowly growing into yeah. something that's pretty impressive uh, at, at Oregon from an attendance perspective. Just because you look at what the numbers are like coming into these games uh, for for Oregon women's basketball, and uh, there was a story by. Uh, the, or- the Oregonian a couple weeks ago that, that said numbers are incredibly up from an attendance perspective. Uh, and I'm trying to find the actual numbers on the media release here, but I'm pretty sure Oregon leads the conference in uh, <coughs> attendance numbers, and they're going to have probably one of the highest ranking or not rankings, but having one of the highest uh, – Oh, see, this is what's disappointing about the Pac-12 is their releases, not even from this week. But let me let me really quick look it up. I, I they were looking at an attendance numbers figures that were in like the six thousands for for conference or for just regular season games. So here we go. Oregon is currently averaging uh, for a home game six thousand four hundred and sixty-eight mm-hmm. fans. Uh, that is. 12,000 more than the next closest, and or 12,000, 1,200 more. That's Oregon State at 5,200. I mean, Oregon State's been, look, the last six years, they've been the more established program over a longer stretch. Obviously, Oregon's made two Elite Eights in a row, but... Here's another figure. The Oregon men are averaging 8,300, so there's only about 1,500 different between the men and yeah. the women right now, and I would guess the way these seasons are going is that those numbers are going to get closer and closer together. Yeah, I just give them a shot. Uh, a shot. I think it's it's they're very entertaining to watch, and if if you're a fan of just basketball in general, um, yeah, it's they're a good team to watch, and you'll enjoy watching them play. 
Um, shifting here a little bit now towards football. Um, Oregon had just one official visitor on campus this past weekend, and I think if your expectation is on on Wednesday of next week that Oregon's going to sign you know seven eight guys for the recruiting class, you're going to be disappointed because across the board, most schools signing day in February is, is becoming a minor deal. It's hey, we got two or three holes and we need to fill them. And if you're, you know, if you miss the boat as a fan on the early signing period for explosions, you're not going to probably see that no. this coming week. We're still going to sign a couple guys. They may still have a couple surprises, but just the sheer number of signees that will, will, will be putting their net name to paper for Oregon, it's going to be pretty low, I think. We know, we know there's going to be, well, we expect that there will be three that will sign that have already verbally committed. Jamal Hill, defensive back from Georgia. DJ James, a defensive back from Alabama. And Logan Sagapalu, a center from Utah, who will not enroll right away. He'll go on his Mormon mission, but he'll still um, be signing with this class. So there's three right there, and that number right there, I think that gets you to 25 because they signed 22 in December. From a pure numbers perspective, you know they don't even have that much room. More, you know, and obviously the other issue is is finding a player that will that will commit that you want to commit that you can use that scholarship wisely. And there have been a handful of guys visiting. It seems like Oregon is pretty much done offensively. I don't think they'll take really anyone else unless it's a top tier wide receiver. Um, you know, you can go to the site and, and kind of read the updates on a guy like Kyle Ford, who there is some scuttlebutt that things with he and USC aren't going very well, which is kind of the situation for a lot of. USC players, but most of what Oregon is going to be doing and kind of addressing from here on out will be defensively, and I think that makes sense, not necessarily because Oregon defensively is bad or anything, but there are a couple positions that they need some depth, and we saw that during the season where, you know, they didn't have really any bodies if Thomas Graham or DeAndre Lenore got hurt. Unfortunately, they didn't. They didn't really have anybody after Jordan Scott. They didn't have a whole lot of guys. You know, even when Austin Fowley went down, you yeah. were starting to see guys that were considered red shirts starting to play. So, addressing those position groups, I think, are kind of what you'll see. But like you said, don't expect to, to, to log in on Wednesday. And I'm sure if you're a recruiting fan, you know what Wednesday is, and that you'll be probably logging in numerous times. But don't expect to log in and see that Oregon's added, like you said, seven or eight guys, because that's not even feasible from a scholarship number perspective. Yeah, yeah. you look at it, and there's key pieces. Uh, to this team that are out there for Oregon in terms of uh, Christian Williams or trying to find a you know Kyle Ford like you mentioned or a Puka Nakua or another receiver that's currently committed to USC, but <clears throat> likelihood I think is very very high that Oregon comes out and says you know we've we've signed four players, it's five players, and that's including the three that have committed uh, to this class already um, and. That's another thing is that, you know, look, Oregon's got 25 guys right now. Logan Sagapalu, a, a three-star offensive center. Offensive center. Uh, offensive as, as, opposed <laughs> to defense, as opposed to the defensive center. I was going to say offensive lineman that's going to play center uh, at the next level. He's taking a two-year religious mission uh, following graduation from high school this season. Um, so he doesn't really count. And so you've got 24 guys. But even as Oregon stands today, they have – allocated 86 out of 85 available scholarships to a player for July 1st, 2019. Meaning somebody either isn't getting into school from the 2019 recruiting class 
or someone on the team that's currently here is leaving. Or on top of that, you could do a gray shirt. You know, and if you're unfamiliar with a gray shirt, that means you're de- you're delaying your enrollment. So to- someone in 2019 does not enroll in July or June or whenever he would typically enroll and instead waits until the January of 2020 to enroll as part of the 2020 recruiting class. So um, it, it's it's a way when you oversign to, to basically wait half a year and then enroll as, as the next class. But that, that takes you know, a, you, you know, and you don't see it happen very frequently. Yeah, it used to happen. It used to happen more often. Well, Dennis Dixon famously did it. There was yeah. some baseball stuff there, but yeah, it doesn't happen all that frequently. Yeah, it used to happen more, uh, but for whatever reason, I think guys want to play. Yeah. Guys don't want to wait, and, and they'll pick the smaller school if they're told the gray shirt, the bigger one probably. Exactly. So maybe there's a gray shirt on the table. Maybe a guy that's not going to get in academically for Oregon this class, but more than likely, someone on the current team is not going to be here. Uh, and I think we probably won't know that until after spring football. I think I think this oversigning is going to carry out over into spring football, and it's going to be basically, you know, something that's going to hang over the team of intended, intended or not. Hey, this is a tryout. You know, there's a couple guys here that you know you need to figure out if you're going to play or not, and if and if you don't play well, you know, we're going to. Suggest that you go play somewhere else because you're not going to play here. Yeah, and I think you know ultimately that's the reality uh, sometimes of how things play out. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the best PR, but that's just the way things go. And again, Cristobal inherited this program. He's trying to build it, and a lot of the guys that I don't want to say on the chopping block because that seems really callous, but a lot of the guys that are maybe possible candidates for a scenario like that aren't guys that he recruited, and that's not to say he doesn't respect them, but they might not be the type of players that fit what he wants to do for the program. So some tough decisions, I agree, will probably have to take place. There might be people who elect to transfer on their own just from looking around during spring practice and going, oh, I don't think I can compete there, but you're right. If Oregon does add two or three more players, that means that's just how many more players they're going to have to push out or have transfer or medically retire. There's a couple of different ways yeah. to get creative with it, but you're right, they're they're one over right now. They're going to sign at least a couple more probably, and that's going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to find some creative solutions. Yeah, you look at it. Look at it as this: if Oregon signs three guys, four guys need to you know not get into school, gray shirt, medically retire, or transfer out of the program. So every player that you add, they basically count as a second player. You, know, you basically have to tap on another one to that one. Um, so Oregon's going to in an interesting spot here. There is going to be a couple guys on campus this weekend for official visits. Uh, Oregon does have uh, a few pieces left to fill, and I think it's you know pretty safe to say everyone kind of knows defensive line, linebacker, possibly receiver. Uh, then and then maybe if if push comes to shove, adding another defensive back. Uh, and then shifting gears now, one last time. A lot of gears being shifted. A lot of today. gears. <laughs> Uh, sound effects. Um, I don't know why I did that. Fantastic sound effects. But now it's on live podcast. Can't can't take it out. Can't take that out. Um, Kind of a surprising move here because it seems like every three or four days there's some kind of report with Oregon softball. And the latest one is that uh, one of their their star freshmen uh, is not going to be eligible, uh, at least as of today, to play. Maybe they can... They can file a waiver. Yeah. Well, it's it's Tara McGowan who started at Arizona State and transferred using that transfer rule. But it sounds like there's a kind of a hang-up with Arizona State on that end. Yeah, she they're was, not signing off on the transfer. Not, they're not okay with it, probably because Oregon's been a rival and kind of the biggest impediment. Arizona State's been right in the cusp for a while, but Oregon's always been kind of that top team. Um, 
But this would be significant. She is expected to be the starting catcher, and, and we should not gloss over the fact that Oregon has lost nine players to transfer, and if McGowan doesn't play, that means they have 13 players eligible to play this season, and if you don't know much about softball, well, you need nine of them on the field <laughs> at any given time, meaning you have very little room for injury, for uh, any sort of pinch-hitting, pinch-running situations. You're basically almost going to be playing the nine you have or the nine, or almost the nine you're going to be playing all the time, so... That's not a great situation. There's a ton of coverage out there, and you can go read the message board. I think we've already sort of set our piece um, previously, and obviously uh, this is going to be a much different softball season. One thing that's interesting to note, and Matt and I were looking at this right before we came on here, is that there have been preseason rankings come out, yep. and Oregon somehow, some way, with 13 players on its roster right now, sneaks into the top 25 at number 25 um, in the, what is it? National Fast Pitch Coaches Association. There you go. So, this is a coach's poll. This is the coach's poll, and so still a lot of respect. It's also worth mentioning that Texas, where Mike White transferred, is only 16th, which is actually probably a little surprising. They weren't very good last year, the reason they went out and found him. But um, famously, White has brought a crew of Oregon players with him, and a lot of the top talent has gone to Texas, and they're eligible to play immediately. So I was a little surprised with their ranking. But Oregon being ranked at all, it feels, honestly, really surprising to me because you look at this. that speaks to the respect of the program. Yeah, and, and you look at this. Basically, the only player back is Haley Cruz, and they bring in a lot of true freshmen that are highly regarded, top 50 recruits. They, they, they've still recruited well, and they're still continuing to recruit well going forward, but this is going to be a team built on newcomers almost entirely. Um, and so a ranking like that is a little bit surprising. Now, the interesting thing would be if none of these players had transferred, I'm guessing this program would be probably ranked, oh, I don't know, in the top one. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, obviously things are, aren't quite up to where they could have been. But, the you know, and let's just be frank, the season's going to start here in almost a week. Um, they won't Three the, teams in the Pac-12 are in the top ten. Which is, which in Oregon has been, that's, and the conference is, that's one of the things, this conference is extremely well respected, and Oregon has long been the top team. I mean, if you, so UCLA and Washington are two and three there. And they each have first place votes. UCLA has six, Washington has five. If Oregon, I'm just telling you, if Oregon had not lost any transfers, and this is probably beating a dead horse, they would be in that top. Two. Yes. I, they would either be maybe one Florida, or two. Maybe Florida State. As a defending champion. Florida State's defending champ. They're number one. They have 21 first place votes uh, out, of the, out of the 32. So yeah. substantial amount. But that being said, Arizona is seventh in the country. Arizona State is 12th in the country in this poll. And then Oregon is the last Pac-12 team at 25. And look, I'll say this about the softball team. I, I am 100% intrigued about this season. Yeah. Um, What's happened off the field? What's happened on you know on practicing on the practice field leading up to this season? Uh, I am absolutely intrigued from just an interest standpoint to see how this team handles playing without Maggie Ballant now as you know their star pitcher and you know they're going to rely on a couple transfers uh, from other programs that are that are going to be your pitchers, uh, neither of which have really dominated at the call at the no. collegiate level. They possibly don't have a transfer uh, eligible player uh, at catcher and Terry McGowan as a true freshman who was a top 25 recruit nationally. So now do you rely on April Utech, the senior who really hasn't played the position until this fall? Yeah. Uh, you brought in a, a freshman walk on and Annalisa Williamson who, you know, she had, 
good numbers at the high school level, but how does that translate she, to the Division One level was, at the Pac-12? My understanding is she wasn't expecting to play college softball, and she got here, and they needed a full, full body basically, and so they grabbed her. So I mean, so I mean, and that's not a, I'm not trying to diminish her and say that she's not capable of playing this level, but I mean, that's a stretch to expect her to play. So yeah, I mean, there are certainly tons of question marks, and and again, the reality is that like depth isn't good anywhere. I mean, I don't think there's a spot on the team where you could probably sustain an injury or two without having to put someone at a position they just don't typically play. So it is, like I, like you said, I agree. This is maybe the most intriguing season just from a, hey, not from a, hey, this team's going to be really good perspective, which is usually what makes a team intriguing, but from a, I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, then you've got, I think, four or five freshmen that were all ranked as, like, top 100 recruits at the softball level, many of them being in the top 25. It's are, still talented. Are they, are they ready and capable of hitting the ground running? And instead of maybe being, you know, the seventh, eighth, and ninth batters in your lineup and, you know, maybe having one or two of them kind of be your utility player off the bench, you know, come in pinch hit and whatnot um, in late game situations or when a game gets out of hand, are they ready to step up into the plate and immediately be called upon? You know, I, I just think this year is going to be fascinating. I'm going to be curious to see, you know, how the fans support, how is this team going to be received? Because you can you can argue till you're blue in the face, I think, about just should Oregon have kept Mike White? Is Melissa Lombardi the head coach? Is she is what she's doing from a practice standpoint and running her program the correct way or the wrong way? We can argue this till you're blue in the face, but the players themselves, they're kind of trapped in the middle of this, you know, Outlook, I, I, I don't know how to phrase it right. correctly, but they are at fault here, and I don't know if anyone's at fault, really. And, That's complicated. And how will the players be received? And, you know, I, I think it will say a lot about this program for the fans that have complained about, you know, not paying the money to Mike White. If, if you don't show up and you don't support this program regardless, I think that speaks more negatively towards the fan base in that regard. Just because, say, Melissa Lombardi doesn't work out, who are you going after next? And if the fan base just gets up and leaves because one coach left, another coach is not going to want to come here. My expectation, actually, is I, I think I think you're going to see pretty good turnout early on in the season, especially. I, it, it's, it's an interesting bond. It seems like, from my experience, between men and men's, male sports and female sports, in terms of when the Oregon football or basketball teams aren't very good, the fans. They'll let you know, but there seems to be a, a certain level of loyalty and appreciation and recognition um, in, in women's sports, and so I, I still expect that this is going to be a, a team that gets a lot of turnout. I think there's still going to be a lot of uh, uncertainty and probably concern surrounding the program all season because when you play, when you go from being what Oregon has been in softball to what we expect they'll be this season. Um, you know, that's going to be frustrating and difficult to swallow because you're used to being so good. But I still expect there's going to be a lot of fan support, and I still think going to games at the Jane is going to be a fun experience. But it might not be the same sort of fun experience you've had in the past where you're you're going and thinking this team can win a national championship because, to me, there's almost that's almost completely infeasible that they're even competing for one at the end of the season. So the season starts February 8th. Uh, in Cal, in, in uh, Tempe, Arizona against Kansas, 10.30 a.m. Friday game. Uh, and they play Missouri, who's also in that, it's a tournament. Missouri is like that, basically the highest rated team, uh, outside of Oregon in this event. They were receiving votes. But then the following week, 
uh, in Clearwater, Florida. They play LSU, uh, James Madison, Florida Atlantic, and Kentucky. And you look at those teams, and Florida Atlantic is the only one that's not ranked in the top 25. Uh, LSU, James Madison, and Kentucky are. Madison, I think, is just around 22 in that, in that ranking. LSU and Kentucky are top 15 teams. So a huge opportunity for, for Oregon early on in this season to get their bearings of where they are and where they, you know, from a competition standpoint, are they going to continue to compete with the best or are they going to slot down a, a, a tier or two this season as they reload? Yeah, you're going to learn a lot early. You're going to probably learn about how good this team is going to be before we ever see them play a game at home because they won't play there until March. It's going to go for Eric uh, and I on this podcast. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, you can search through us through any of your podcasts, search, you know, whatever you use to, to listen to podcasts. Just search for the Duck Territory Podcast. Uh, like us, give us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, and for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. See you guys.